Hello and welcome to yet another Film File, Just The Reviews. So in this second compilation of reviews from past episodes, we're now looking at episodes 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10, in which we covered, wow, get ready for this, Terminator Dark Fate, Zombieland Double Tap, Doctor Sleep, Frozen 2, Knives Out, The Irishman, Rise of Skywalker and Jojo Rabbit. So, let's get on with it. I mean, we're going to be talking about Dark Fate, uh, but James Cameron's been talking about possible plans for the Terminator franchise, saying that Dark Fate serves not only as a standalone story, but also as part of a new trilogy, because that's the key word where whenever you mention Terminator, everything has to be the start of a new trilogy so that when it doesn't get greenlit, they can reboot it again. I'm, I'm not sold. I'm I, not sold. I think that quite nicely uh, turns us into a corner of, uh, of, of discussion into our regular film reviews. And we've got two, which normally we only give you one, but this time we're going to give you two reviews. And while we're on the subject of it... He's the most lethal Terminator ever created. How do we stop this? It will take all of us. He has found us. We choose our weapons. And then we take it down. Terminator Dark Fate. Andy, you have seen Terminator Dark Fate. I have Dark seen Fate. Terminator Dark Fate. Now... Let's let's be clear here. I went in with low expectations. Since Terminator 2, every Terminator film has been declining in standard. So I was going in just thinking, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's see what it's like. And I'm really pleased to let you know that it fulfilled all my expectations <laughs> of being a disappointment. Oh, well, I mean, let's say it's executive produced this time by Cameron himself. He provided the story concept outline, which then was passed to Goya and his team. David Goya, uh, Billy Ray was on it, and directed by Tim Miller. Tim Miller, which, you know, Tim, Mil Tim Miller, like, I'm usually reasonably impressed with what he does. And direction-wise, you know, he, he's still got an eye for vision, like, for vis good visual shots. He, he knows how to, like, frame things. But the story he was working with was garbage. Um, it starts off promising. We see another glimpse of the now different future war. Uh, we get to see a bit more of that dark future. And the story itself does, like, kind of explain how like time had changed but like a new timeline had set up but it quickly devolves into just a series of action sequences that we've seen before freeway chases while one's in like a broken down truck and one's on a big juggernaut behind them helicopters i just seem to be ticking some boxes yeah, there it, it is what literally... we have seen before halfway through the film i was blatantly aware that i was watching terminator 2 again but done badly and don't get me wrong linda hamilton returning as sarah connor She's amazing. She is the, the only thing worth focusing on in the whole film. It makes it clear, and I've seen this like written in another review somewhere, Arnie was never the important character in the Terminator Oh, films. absolutely not. She was. And her character being back in it made it feel, yeah, it's a proper sequel to the second film. But at the same time, she's the only good thing in amongst a load of things that we've seen tried, tested and failed so many times. And I just couldn't feel any care for where it was going. By the time it came to the final action sequence and the final like battle between them all, I was like, I, I'm not bothered anymore. It's a it's a misstep. It's a huge misstep. And maybe it's proof that maybe that franchise hasn't got legs at all. 
Cameron's been saying after each one of the films came out, he'd always promote each of the films and say, oh yeah, it's, it's great. But then when he came out, well, actually, I don't consider it a true sequel. He's been saying that this is a true sequel because this is his story. But I just don't think that even he being involved has made anything made, made anything good out of it. What worries me is that sounds like word for word the review of Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Yeah. And then three movies on, we're saying the same things over and over again, relentlessly. It's it's one of those things, there's only certain ways it can play out. Whether you try to do something broad and different, like Terminator 4, for instance, which, yeah. to give it some credit, it did try to, to do something different with the franchise, even though it, it didn't make it and, and failed. It, visually, it was, it was a stunning film. It just liked and there was internal politics as to why it went all over the place. Genesis doesn't even exist in my world. Terminator <laughs> uh, Jellyfish. I want to be in your world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a, an obscure timeline uh, film. So, yeah, disappointing to hear because uh, it did look like it was a return. But it's one of those things we've, we've talked about, we've, we've touched upon in the last few weeks. It's, it, it's very generational Terminator. It's the nostalgia thing. Yeah, it is. And we, we keep coming back to this week in and week out, you know, reboot and, and, and remake Madness. But it's a, another another attempt to, to revitalise a franchise that may be better off staying in the past and, and living up to its former glories of, of Terminator and T2. Or even just a after enough time, obviously, a proper reboot where we don't have to honour Arnie, we don't have to honour Linda Hamilton and Edward Furlong and this original timeline. You can just create a whole new story with the same sort of element. And that's what they tried to do with Genesis, though, wasn't it, to a degree? It's important to note as well that... It was like a fan film best of wasn't it they had to be a liquid terminator they had to be kyle reese and that's what this one suffers from because now that i mean you'll have seen from the trailers the terminator has like internal skeleton shell but it has the liquid terminator on the outside and they operate independently and it's rubbish because we're just seeing the liquid one doing exactly what the t1000 did whilst the other one's doing exactly what the t800 did nothing new you've just combined the two for no reason at all. And there's moments that it merges back together yeah. to fight. And you're just like, well, why would you merge back together if you can do these two things independently? Why would you just not attack from two sides? Do you think, because obviously James Cameron successfully transitioned it into an action franchise with Terminator 2, do you think it'd be almost more interesting or better if it returned to its sort of more sci-fi thriller? It was almost a sci-fi horror, wasn't it? Yeah. To, to when it first came out. But it felt fresh then. We'd not seen, well, we, we'd seen similar sort of stories. We'd seen time travel opuses before and we'd even seen familiar elements in it but it was told in a fresh way yeah. it was told kind of balls out uh, and it was a fun ride but it had some it had heart to it and I think subsequently that got lost even in T2 for me got lost yeah. the heart had started to go it was the first re replaced by a spectacle I think Cameron works better on a smaller budget yeah, I think it makes him a tighter filmmaker and when he's got all the toys doesn't necessarily mean he's, he's going to make a great film I think we're going to be having this conversation whenever about the Avatar sequels. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, I've got a little bit of news on the Avatar sequels that whilst it was reported that it was going to be in HFR, Cameron's now said it's not going to be in HFR. It's going to be in 3D because he still thinks it's a thing, but he's going to use what he calls VFR, variable frame rate, where when the action intensifies, the frame rate rate will intensify slightly, not go straight up to like the jarring HFR one, but just increase slightly to give it a different kind of intensity feel and make the vibrant action stand out. He says that it works better because the 3D, sometimes when there's a lot going on, in normal standard yeah, it definition, quite it becomes quite difficult to follow. Whereas the HFR makes it clear 
but doing something intermediate and just like seamlessly integrating it into it that intrigues me intrigues it feels me. like a party piece but when he when he introduced avatar 3d was was something that was still relatively new and he brought something yeah. completely i trust him with the use of technology i'm not yeah, trusting, yeah, it's a not technology. trusting with the story because terminator dark fate has shown that he, he is basically telling with terminator dark fate the same story that he told in terminator which was then repeated for Terminator 2. And it's clear that he's only got one story to tell in that whole franchise. My biggest problem with Terminator Dark Fate doesn't know whether it's serious or a comedy. Okay. It starts off quite serious. And for the first half of the film, very, very serious. And it's like, oh, this is Terminator 1. This is Terminator 1. It's like really serious and dark. And then Arnie comes into it. And then there's little Arnieism quips and jokes going into it. And you're like, this is not on balance with the rest of the film. Why are you doing this? And that was the point of the film that I, was, I just checked out. I was like, you know what? Just finish this. Get it out of the way now. Do we think it's going to find an audience? Is the box office receipts looking good for it? It's not no. looking great. Is it, is it tracking well? No. And that could be the big decider, more so than uh, an apocalyptic future. You know the what they should do? Go back to taking it to TV, like they tried with the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was, was short-lived, didn't find an audience, but it was pretty good. Yeah. That I think that the Terminator franchise on TV will give more opportunity to tell more creative stories within that framework rather than a two-hour film that has to do, tick the box, have we had like a Jeep? Tick the box, have we had a helicopter? Have we got Sarah Connor toting a giant gun? Okay. <laughs> We've got a new style Terminator. Uh, Mr. Cameron, Netflix on line one for you. <laughs> um, Spielberg online too to tell you you're not doing cinema <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's Terminator Dark Fate not the strongest review from Andy there but we have both seen Zombieland 2 which again feels like let's bring back a sequel slightly past its sell by date mm -hmm. but turned out to be a lot of fun welcome to Zombieland we're a family dysfunctional sure but what family isn't is this your dad sister is gone. She picked up the boy. He's from Berkeley. Berkeley. Boom. Yeah. No! We ride it, Dawn. There are zombies approaching. Can I see? Oh, man, it's so tiny. Big, tiny. She is adorable. Zombieland Double Tap. Andy, give us a lowdown on the plot. Plot-wise, it's 10 years later, and Tallahassee, Columbus, Wichita, and Little Rock are still surviving in Zombieland. The film opens with them basically wanting to go into the White House and occupy the White House in an immensely fun opening sequence that once again we get another Metallica track. However, Little Rock, now that she's getting older, is starting to feel the pangs of love and wants to find that companion and she feels that she's stifled by the group. So when the group kind of splits and she disappears off, they go on a road trip to try to find her because she's eloped with a hippie. Along the way is where the fun takes place. And along the way is where Woody Harrelson just becomes an utter, utter legend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Now, I enjoyed it for all the same reasons that you did. It felt unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. It felt derivative of what it did in the first one. It's, it's too late for the zombie genre because it's moved on so much. This is pre-Walking Dead, even though there's a nice little nod to Walking Dead in it. And a nice little nod to, to zombies in particular, the zombie franchises. What I did enjoy about it is being back with these characters because they are the heart of it. And that's the reason we should have, if, if for any other reason, a, a Zombieland sequel. There's so much fun with those characters. They play so well against each other. There's such different personalities. The cast are great. And even when you get the um, pseudo versions of them that you'll have seen in the trailer, it plays some of the gimmicks 
that those characters have had against each other, and it leads to some hilarious rules to survive. It does. I I I found myself groaning and smiling at the, at the same time. Groaning not in a zombie kind of way, but groaning anyway at this feels like a forced sequel because story wise it's all over the place. It, it never it never knows where it wants to go. It has some some slight missteps and and just odd turns in it. Which even though it's it's reminiscent of what it did in the first film, the the road trip idea, it just sort of went a little bit all over the place. But it keeps coming back to the characters keeps coming back to the snappy dialogue um, and the fact that these these group of actors work really well together and play off each other very, very well. Emma Stone, of course, wasn't a big star when, when that came out. She wasn't an Oscar-winning act, actor at that point, and now she's a, she's a big star. So you got the feeling that they came back out of a, out of love of, of being those those guys and, and, and playing in that world again. And that comes through if, if of course, it, it feels derivative of, it, of itself. But I enjoyed the hour and a half, however long I was in there, and smiled all the way through and chuckled at the right times and walked out and thought, that was Thin, but I had a good time with Thin. It reminded me in ways, and uh, bear with me on this one, of Gremlins 2. <laughs> yes. The, the Gremlins 2 knew how daft a concept Gremlins was, so did a sequel that played on that kind of daftness and was very self-referential and worked so much better because of it. Zombieland 2 knows how daft Zombieland was and it knows that it's been done to death, that whole concept. So it's just going, you know what? We're going to have fun with it. And it even references like some of the quotes that the characters say that are so 10 years ago. It knows exactly what it's doing. If the script is playing to that, like, okay, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing this sequel, but we know we shouldn't be doing this sequel. So yeah. we're just going to have fun with this instead. And it works because it doesn't try to be anything clever. It just wants to just be. There's Woody Harrelson again. There's Jesse Eisenberg. Have fun. So if you want to go back to the familiar, you want to go back and have fun in Zombieland, this is the perfect film for that. Did you know they tried to do a TV series at one point? Absolutely. Well, uh, well I never watched it, though. Did you I, watch it? No. I don't think anybody did. Anybody that's, why. Did. that's why they, they tried to do a TV series. <laughs> I always felt the first one felt like exactly what it were, like a few episodes of a potential TV series yeah. thrown together. And it sounds like from this, I gather it's more of a selection of sketches. Yeah, it holds on to a very, very thin plot, which is... The whole road movie aspect gives them an opportunity to just go, and now for the next 15 minutes, yeah. with this location, this is happening. And now we can forget that because we're moving over to here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's thin, but enjoyably thin. Right, so, jumping into our uh, featured review this week. There are a lot of movies out that, due to time constraints, due to floods in this end of the world, we've not got a chance to see uh, a lot of movies. So this is appearing a little bit late. Bear with us because we're going to talk about something much bigger. But Le Mans 66 is out this week. It is, yes. Uh, we, we, There's also Last Christmas has just been released. Last Christmas, which, uh, you know, despite it being a Christmas film, I've heard very good things about it and I'm quite interested to see. So we're a little bit behind with our, our usual reviews. So we are going to go back, look at Doctor Sleep that was released last week. You're running away from something? From myself, I guess. Your magic. Like me. I always called it The Shining. When I was a kid, there was a place. You still owe a debt. Pay it. Wakey, wakey. Nobody shines like you, Doc. Doctor Sleep. So my review, have you got to see it yet? I've got to see it, yep. Yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, it's based on the novel by Stephen King. 
It's got Ewan McGregor now as the grown-up Danny Torrance, who was the kid in The Shining. He's still plagued by memories and also ghosts of the Overlook Hotel, and follows his father's footsteps of becoming an alcoholic. He hits rock bottom, jumps on a coach, goes to a backwater town, and starts to put his life back into gear. Gets, like, buddied up straight away by a handyman who also had an alcoholic past, and so he takes him under his wing, takes him to AA, and as he gets his life into gear, he starts to tap into his shine again which is the name that they gave to his psychic powers. And when he does that, he starts to get messages from a young girl called Abra, who seems to be able to telepathically talk to him and communicate with him. And then it moves ahead in time, a significant amount of time, as she's growing up and he's managed to make a life for himself as Dr. Sleep, working as a janitor in an old person's home and helping people pass over to the other side with happy memories. Uh, and and into this mix, their powers or her powers in particular attracted the attention of a group of psychic vampires led by Rose the Hat, played fantastically by Rebecca Ferguson, who will stop at nothing to hunt down Abra yeah. and the steal true knot have been around for eons. Yeah, they are referenced in the film. They steal shine energy from young children and teenagers and feed off it and store any excess that they've got so they can keep feasting, keep feasting. But the shine's been running low on supplies recently when abra hits their attention it's because she's got a shine which is more powerful than they've ever encountered and they know that they'll be able to feast for maybe centuries on her energies it's brought to us by mike flagan who did the house on haunted hills tv series that was on netflix and gerald's game it's based on stephen king's follow-up as you said to the to the shining which is a book that I kind of enjoyed. And I'm, I'm going to say this, which doesn't often happen with, with, with Stephen King adaptations. I think this is a better film than, it is, than the book was. I felt that the book and, and some of the film suffers for this. It didn't have the gravitas of The Shining. The Shining was a, a important novel. And of course, Kubrick's film was an important film. It's one of the, the books and films that, that really threw King into the public consciousness in a way that uh, many of the horror writers hadn't. And Doctor Sleep as a book didn't have that weight and wasn't even the size of the original Shining. And therefore, I, I walked away from the book being a little bit, little bit disappointed. I liked elements of it. I liked the psychic vampires. I like uh, Rose the Hat as a character. Rose the Hat is a perfect example of how good Stephen King is at creating villains. Yes. Charismatic villains. And it, yeah, I, I'm a bit of a fan of the book. It suffers from what most Stephen King books suffer from, that it doesn't quite stick the landing. Yeah. He always seems to have trouble ending it. But it was a book that I read within, like, 48 hours. As soon as I started reading it, I just fell straight into the story and I, I got a lot from it. I was excited for a film adaptation. I was excited to see particularly how they would have got Rose the Hat. Yes. And um, the True Knot depicted. And I think they've done a stellar job of it. Captured it perfectly. You can see that Mike Flanagan's a fan and is a Stephen King fan. And clearly is a fan of Kubrick's The Shining, which, interestingly enough, if you know your lore, King never liked. He, he seriously disliked it. In fact, went ahead and made, uh, with Mick Garris, uh, a, a TV version which was much closer to his book. And at the end of the book uh, and the end of the movie were two very, very different animals. And in, in the... Um, in the book, he, he approached those and, and basically had a slight kickback at, at Kubrick on it. But the but the film walks a very clever line, I think. It toes it perfectly. Yeah. It uses the book, the core story of the book. The first like hour is more or less lifted. It is, by yeah. And those, those were the faults with the film for me because it's it was slightly, it was too spread out. 
with with characters not meeting for an awful long time, which was the fault of the book and the fault of the source material. And I think they managed to to move it along in a way within the movie that, that gave it much more sense of importance, but really dragged for me in the book. However, as you said, they told the line perfectly between honouring Kubrick, which you can't make a Shining Seek without honouring Kubrick. I'm right afraid. from the opening shot, it's like Overlook Hotel. References, shots, references, imagery, even having cast which look very similar to, uh, especially Shelley Duvall, and there's a sequence which, yep. which, uh, uh, which comes back to that. Uh, Ewan McGregor's great in it. He's, he's kind of an unsung hero these days, Ewan McGregor. He does very, very solid work. He's, as he's got older, he's becoming much more of a character actor. Didn't notice the accent that some people have in some reviews. It's not a particularly scary film. Uh, where... There's some truly chilling moments in there. Yeah, there's, there's some jumps. It doesn't rely on jump the, cuts, which is the, really... I, I mean, I th- the, without spoiling anything, um, the, the True Knots feeding... Is one of the most harrowing scenes that I've seen on yeah, film this year. It's very gratuitous uh, in a way that horror movies should be. I don't see this as a horror movie. I think it's a supernatural movie, and yeah. that's the kind of horror that I I personally like. I thought it, it worked very very well. It's a shame it's not found an audience. No, I love like th- there's so many things about it. I mean, I love the the framing of everything. I, I'm I'm a sucker for a good cinematographer, and I love some of the shots and some of the like emulation of shots from The Shining. Yeah are done so well but also i love the music and the noises and the constant beating of the heart beating of the heart motif that keeps coming back and it really like i, I was starting to like, i could feel my own heartbeat starting to race when that starts to race and it, it drew me in it does a much better ending than what the book did okay spoiler moment now if you've not seen the film and you're intending to see the film we, we will talk a little bit about the uh, about the ending skip ahead to our neat things but yeah it, it really resolves the ending much better than the book did and it resolves Kubrick's The Shining as well in yeah. a way that uh, it, it it deserved uh, I really thought the uh, the ending was where it pulled it out of the bag for me The Overlook Hotel becomes an important character in the yes. film whereas it wasn't particularly an important character in the book of Doctor Sleep No because the, the, if I remember correctly the hotel is destroyed in yeah, the book. Yeah, it's just the true not have their main camp based there. Yeah. But that's not the actual story in here. The true not aren't based at the Overlook. There's, the Overlook's got its own purpose within the film. And I think it really works well for the resolution. Absolutely. That they're drawn there. And it gives a, a better ending to uh, Danny Torrance's narrative as well. That, I'm not saying that the, the book didn't, it was much more optimistic there's a, there's a different sense of optimism within the movie without giving too much away. But yeah, overall, I really liked it. So now we're going to be moving on to the film roundup for this week that you've not seen any of. I'm just going to sit back and let Andy <laughs> talk now for the next remaining half hour of the programme because I've been really lapsed. And uh, and it's it's weird because I don't think I've, I've been as lapsed as I have recently. Really suffered. It's been a few weeks since we last recorded, so there's been a good few films come out. I've managed to catch three of the biggest ones, and there's so much more coming out over the next few weeks. We've got Jumanji, Next Level, we've got Star Wars, we've got Cats, if you like horror. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's some interesting so rumours going busy around time time of year, So we're not going to be able to cover everything, but I'm trying to pull out the ones that are like key. First of all, it's going to be running all the way through Christmas. It makes no difference that it's already been out for two weeks. Frozen 2. The worldwide phenomenon is now the number one movie in the world. Yes! Into the end. That's normal. Frozen 2. 
Now playing. Frozen 2. I kind of liked Frozen. I unashamedly loved Did the you? first film. I was, I was almost in tears towards right. the end of it. It was, I, it was everything that a Disney film should be for me. I, th- I mean, I thought, you know, the levels of animation were superb. The songs were great. It wasn't my favourite of the new Disney films. But then again, it wasn't aimed at me. It was aimed at me. It was aimed at you. And I, I thought what they did was, was, was again, a quite a dramatically interesting turn of events by not making about a romance between girl and a guy, but it was a, it was a relationship between two sisters. And that's, for me, in a nutshell, why it was a huge film. Yeah. Because it was about, about sisterhood. It was about your best friend and you being your sister. And it was, it was aimed at a, a, a demographic of girls that had never seen that before. And I thought for that alone, it was absolutely superb. Well, with how huge that film was and how huge that one song was, it was no doubt there was going to be a sequel. And most Disney sequels have always gone straight to home release. But this one was destined for the big screen from the offset. And so we see Anna, Elsa, Olaf, Kristoff and Sven return in a sequel that it's lighter on story, but I think it's funnier than the first film. Some of the reviews I've read is... Genuinely hilarious. Loved it, but where's the plot? Yeah, I mean, to get to get a background of the, the story, it starts with plot exposition Storyland, which tells of a mystic forest where four elements are balanced and how disaster enshrouded the forest in a mist and trapped those inside forever. However, legend tells of a <coughs> fifth element... And you Gary cu- Oldman now? <laughs> and you cut to the present day, and Elsa is hearing like a strange singing voice beckoning in her. When she responds to that voice, her land is put in peril, and the whole group of them have to go to this mystic faraway lands to go and find out what's being calling and work out what the <coughs> fifth element actually is. Right. There's nothing original in there. No. And and as I said, the most of the things that I've heard have been disappointment about this is the plot. However, does it capture the charm of the first film? Yes. Which is the important element. The characters, you're already in love with them from the first film. They pick up exactly the same. They are still as charming. Olaf the snowman is still an amusing side character, but he's got some great... He's got a great moment where he recaps the whole story of the first film in like a 45-second sequence, and it adds all in stitches in the auditorium watching it. Songs-wise, not as memorable. Not as standout It's hard, hard to hit. The, but that's the... not to say that they're not good. There's one which is more mem- will be more memorable for people of our age than it will be to any of the kids who won't latch onto it, called uh, Lost in the Woods. And it's basically an 80s ballad. that The whole animation around that sequence looks like an 80s pop video. I Give me some 80s power ballad right now. It's absolutely brilliant. We're, when that se- se- sequence started up, we were sat watching it and we're chuckling away and going, is this deliberately... Like- yeah, this is deliberate. They are deliberately doing this. This is great. And I was I was in love with it. But the songs throughout are good. The characters are as lovable as you remember. The story's a bit light. The animation is superb. It's coming leaps and bounds. I mean, it's only been a few years since the last one came out, and that was astonishing to look at. But the level of animation techniques has developed so much. There's scenery bits that you look at and just go, that's... That, that can't just be animation. They must have actually took a yes. camera to like the coast of Scotland and filmed something there. But no, that's how far we've got that it's photorealistic animation. Absolutely brilliant. Thoroughly enjoyed the film. It was one that after we watched it, it was like, I enjoyed that. Don't know how much. And the next morning it's like, I really enjoyed it and got the soundtrack. I want to watch it again. I'm looking forward to watching it again. Like I say, light on story, but it amused me and entertained me more 
than the first one. It had me chuckling pretty much all the way through it. That's Frozen 2. What else have we got? So we've also got Knives Out. Which I'm really looking forward to. Um, again, scheduling for me has been all over the place. I think if there's one film out of all the films that we'll be talking about that I do want to see, then, then Knives Out. This is Benoit Blanc, the private investigator of great renown. My father committed suicide. Why are you here? Everyone in the family has possible motives. That's some heavy-duty conjecture. None of them are murderers. <laughs> you know something. <laughs> Spill it. This is a twisted web, and we are not finished untangling it. Hello. Knives Out. It just appeals to me from, from, the, from that very first trailer, it was my kind of film. As someone who disliked Last Jedi, some people got confused with how excited I was about Knives Out coming out. They clearly have never seen Looper or Brick. Brick is a, uh, is a phenomenally good and interesting film. And I, I'm a big uh, fan of Brothers Bloom as well. I've not got a chance to see Brothers Bloom. It's a little bit all over the place. It's a little bit ambitious in a way, in a, in a very old-fashioned film style. The, the, the impression I've got with Knives Out as well. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll hold judgment until I've seen it. It was a little bit too clever. It was that, that second film syndrome of doing something and being bigger and having more money to, pay, to play with and, a, and a bigger, a bigger theatre to work in. But there's a lot about it I did like an awful lot. I don't think Last Jedi was a bad film. I just felt that it didn't sit nice with the numbered Star Wars films. It didn't feel like part of that series. If it was its own film without those characters or with like those characters but given different names, I think it would have been like, yeah, I can accept this. But it was the fact that it was playing with already established characters that I kind of get what jarred you mean. against where I thought those characters were. And as much as I don't want to be that kind of fanboy, I can't help when I've grown up with these characters to feel that there was some disservice that went on. Yeah. But, you know, I've, I've said before, Ryan Johnson, I'm excited to see him given something else in the Star Wars universe. If he, he, he brought an individualistic vision to it, didn't he? And That I'm didn't all, really fit in with anyone else's vision. I'm always that. excited to see what project he's working on. And Knives Out intrigued me because it, it, looks, it looked on paper like Clue for a new generation. It looked like a, a nice murder mystery, but with a, a sense of humour to it. Without giving anything away. So, is this film Clue for a new generation? Kind of, but not. <laughs> okay, that's clear. It's a well-woven crime tale. Basically, the, the story of it is that after a family celebration, a famous crime novelist dies and it looks like suicide. However, a private investigator who is brought into the scene, who's been hired by an undisclosed person, to investigate it a bit further, starts to unravel loads of family histories and secrets that have been going on, meaning that you can never be completely sure as to who's done what and why and where it's all going. These are the hardest films from, from history of being a broadcaster <laughs> to review because you can only really give the top line idea of what yeah. it is without, without saying anything about it and whether you just enjoyed it or not. What can be said is that the dialogue is where it's all at in this film. It has some of the best dialogue exchanges that I've seen on film for years. Ryan Johnson knows how to like get something framed. He knows how to get the best out of his cast, and the cast are clearly loving, bantering, bickering, throwing arguments back at each other. It flows. There's elements in the dialogue that are put in there as red herrings. There's elements in the dialogue that are very important, but they might seem very trivial at points in time. It is so cleverly written. 
and so cleverly scripted that you get to the end and you don't feel at any point you've been cheated by any of the red herrings. You feel, oh, well, that, that, was, re that was there for a reason. That was there to keep me guessing. Absolutely enjoyed it. It's got a great cast as well. Oh, Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Michael Shannon. I can never see enough of Michael Shannon on screen. I love seeing him pop up more and more. Lakeith Stanfield, Don Johnson, who seems to have been having a resurgence over the years. Yeah, we had years. him in Watchmen. We had him in uh, Django a few years back. Christopher Plummer and Anna Deramas. I'm looking forward to it. I My plan is to, uh, to get it seen within the next couple of days. Absolutely delectable dialogue. The attention's in the detail. And like I say, some beautiful framing. There's a sequence with Daniel Craig talking through ideas where watching the sequence and he starts taking his jacket off and then he rolls up his sleeves and by the time he's finished talking he's put his sleeves back up and puts the jacket back on and it's just like he just did that for a monologue that was great i love that and you wonder whether that was scripted or whether it was just something that he did on set because it just feels so natural everything that the cast are doing feels like they were just they were there and they were involved in it brilliant thoroughly recommend it it's doing well it's probably going to be running for a while and it deserves to make the money Fantastic. What else have we got? What's our, our final review? And so for those of you who can't make it to the cinema... Yes, that's been me. Uh, there's a film that we might have mentioned once or twice over the past episodes, That how excited we were for it coming out. Uh, the Irishman. The Irishman. Only three people in the world have one of these. And only one of them is Irish. I have one. Angelo has one. Now you have one. This is beautiful. Would you like to be a part of this history? Yes, I would. Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. Well, a friend of mine said to me, I'm going to stay in and watch the Irish film about the Irish guy and I thought he was talking about Father Ted at first I, I was confused oh go on Miles Cassese um, reteaming with Robert De Niro reteaming with Harvey Keitel working with Al Pacino for the yeah. first time in that uh, we've got The Irishman which is almost four hours long I believe in, in running time three and a half hours long um, it's an adaptation of I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt which tells the tale of Frank Sheeran and his involvement oh, with John Jimmy Pesci Hoffa. was the other one I was going to mention. Yeah, it, the involvement that Frank Sheeran had as a, a hitman for Hoffa and Jimmy Hoffa, like, and yeah. all the um, mob that was around him. This is this is another Goodfellas. This is an old fellas Goodfellas. It's a life story adapted from someone's life journal, presented on screen in a historical context kind of way, but with some light elements in there to not drag you completely down and some. Great, great castings. I mean, you know, the aforementioned De Niro, Pacino, Pesci. We've also got um, Ray Romano's in there. Anna Paquin, who there's been a lot of controversy about she doesn't say much words, but it makes sense for her character if you watch it. Right. I hate this whole thing that people are doing a tally chart of how many lines females have and start to say, oh, misogynistic director's not giving the lines. Watch the film, get the context we had this with once upon a time in hollywood yes no extra lines were needed everything was conveyed in a beautiful role without words so it's not a measuring contest anyway that's a little rant on the side Be, feel free this is why we're here there was cheaper a, than therapy the only quibble that there was and this was always going to be a quibble was that cgi de-aging technology it took a good 15 minutes or so to get used to it and i think the biggest problem with this 
is we know what each of these actors looked like when they were younger. Yes. And it's not that. Right, okay. And so you see, I mean, Joe Pesci is the one who looks completely bizarre. He looks like a Satsuma with a, with a face drawn on it on some of the CGI things when he's younger because they've just really oranged his face. It's like, what is that? I don't get it. And it was jarring. But once I got over that initial shock, I became more accepting of it and didn't notice it going forwards. So are we looking at classic Scorsese? Are we looking at Return to Goodfellas, Casino, that period? Yes, definitely. It sits nicely in amongst all that era of Scorsese films. I absolutely loved it. I know a lot's been said about the runtime, but it's only 30 minutes longer than Wolf of Wall Street was. And I don't recall people complaining about that. And if I remember correctly, Goodfellas was, was super long. Yeah. The, the the issue that I've got, and it's not not an issue of, of running time, it's this is a film that, that was meant for cinema in my head. I, I find it easier to sit through three and a half hours in a cinema where I'm, I'm enclosed in, a, in, in that experience. Watching this on TV... No matter how big your screen is, it's still a home experience where it's easy to pick up the phone. It's easy to say, I need to get up and have a cup of tea. And and, and a movie like this is, is, a, is a cinematic movie. Saying that, I will watch it. I'm, I'm actually, uh, this is my plan after we finish tonight, is to, is to go and watch The Irishman. I have the time to do it. But, you know, it's it's, it's not the same as seeing it in a cinema. It's, it feels it feels that's why you see a film at three and a half hours. Or do you, do you watch it in smaller instalments? Well, know. there's that guide that someone put together for splitting it up into like 40 to 45 minute episodic chunks, which you can go and find and like then you can do it like that. Or you can read that and do what I did and binge watch the whole season in one go. Right, okay, you see it like that. See it like that, because we're living in a world where people are happy to say, I watched all of season, like season three of Stranger Things in one day, yeah. but we're not happy to watch one three and a half hour film. Yeah. And that seems bizarre. We're also in a world where the Snyder cultists wanting a 214 minute version of a bad film. Yes. And yet... Film fans and like you know people who say, oh yes, I, I'm passionate about like the, the industry and passionate about film, are moaning at a three and a half hour film. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm I, no, I don't have a problem with the three I, and a half hour I, film. It, but I've, I've seen some people who were saying I would have seen it at the cinema, but it was too long as well. It's only for the immersive experience of watching it in the cinema. That's where you you I engage more. I mean, I engage in a cinema. I will engage with bad films in a cinema, which I won't give the time to day, time of day as as much. You know, the, the, the one thing I miss about seeing, and, and this is not necessarily how my career has changed, but it's how, how the cinema distribution industry changed. You could see a film three or four days, sometimes a couple of weeks in advance, yeah. and you would get to see everything as a film reviewer. Now, th those running times are, are very, very small, but I would sit and watch the most terrible film. It was my job, and there was something about watching it immersively in a cinema, which... Which, which makes it, it gives it a credence, it gives it a reason to be, and, and it's not like being direct-to-video. And I'm not assuming, I'm not saying for a moment that The Irishman is a direct-to-video. Is um, it cinema? <laughs> but is it cinema? <laughs> There's a question. I just would like to have seen it on the big screen. I don't regret having watched it at home. I did watch it all in one sitting. I was engrossed throughout. At no point did my mind start to wander. Uh, no score, like some people says, oh, you can skip this, skip that. Score says he's gone. No, no, no. Everything should be watched together because it's it's all flows. And I see what he means. He's well, everything is a really be. good it's, story. There's nothing, nothing there that is film. that is disposable. Everything is important for the journey of the character through it. Brilliant film. It's Scorsese back to fine form, and it, it's one that he can happily turn around and say this sits alongside the ones that people always turn to and say are the best of my works. Absolutely loved it. Master filmmaker at work. And 
In this case, is it cinema? I'll soon find out. <laughs> a film that is destined to to break some records. Whether it'll be the most successful out of the out of the series, I don't know. As of course, Star Wars. We've passed on all we know. Thousand generations live in you now. But this is your fight. You're not alone. Good people will fight if we lead them. Taking one last look at my friends. You will die. The Rise of Skywalker. Now, we both saw this. Yes, we both caught it yesterday on the opening day. Yeah, we did, because we are. We do the geek work for you. We are your geek army. And we are the audience who've been with this franchise since it launched. You know, for me, I've said many times that my earliest childhood memory was age four watching Star Wars when we were down at London with relatives for the new year in 1977. So I got to see it during that, like, back in those days in the UK... If you weren't in London, you had to wait an extra month for things to come out. That's right. I remember going to see it. I finished school early and a couple of friends and I, we got on the bus and we kept, we went to uh, the cinema in, in, in town I grew up in. And there wasn't a queue because our, our school finished early before the other school. So literally, while it, the, the opening day had been absolutely people queuing around the block, we kind of walked in sort of mid-afternoon and uh, and it was busy. And I've done a lot of radio interviews over the last week talking about Star Wars and talking about Cats and, and its it, its significance. And, and significance for me is it was the first time and everything I collected about it, I knew the story before I saw the film. Talk about not going in spoiler-free. I'd already read the Star Wars adaptation. The Marvel by, comic adaptation at the time. I there would was, grab anything. There was like TV specials showing the behind the scenes yeah. thing, which was shown in the UK before the film came out. So you knew everything about this film because the, it was summertime in 77 it came out in the US. Yeah. And like I say, it was Boxing Day 77 in the West End of London and then mid-January. 78 then. Yeah, 78. Wow. I'd, I'd be trying to work out my 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 years on when it. I didn't realise. Because kind of for me... Earliest childhood memory, and it's definitely the thing that put me on the track to loving film Absolutely. and wanting to be involved in film. And all my life and career has all mapped out from that one point. I would totally agree. I think it forged a lot of my identity. It was the first film that spoke to me in the language that I understood. I was a comic geek. I'd always loved science fiction. I was kind of the odd one out at school because I love science fiction, love comics, though I don't think I, many of my friends uh, were into it at all. Uh, you know, when you think of Marvel now and you think of comics, it, they are an international language. Back then it wasn't, especially in the UK. So Star Wars, uh, we'd had Star Trek up until then, but but proved my identity. And then, you know, we the, the floodgates opened because soon after Star Wars, Close Encounters came out. Yep. And Superman I, in 78 as well. Superman, which is just nearly my all-time favourite film, even so more than Star Wars. Superman has a, is, is very personal to me, and it's uh, uh, it's a film that my, my dad and I bonded over, and we had a, a, a difficult relationship, but it's the film that we bonded over. So Superman always, will always beat Star Wars for me, but Star Wars changed everything, changed the way I, I, I had folders of clippings from the press and everything, and it was the first time I totally, totally geeked out 
and uh, uh, between Star Wars and, and some of the, the bands I got into around that period, it changed And my it life. really pushed, like, the collector's culture and also, like, you know, the, the merchandise culture. You know, as kids, we all had, like, the action figures and we would tell our own stories using them. But also bubblegum cards, which had usually traditionally just been for sports heroes, yeah. Yeah. were now... I, I, I collected them as a kid, the Star Wars bubblegum cards. Yes, me too. The bubblegum was awful. But you didn't care because you was got cardboard. two cards. It was like in, pink cardboard. You got two cards in each pack and you wanted to get all 180 yeah. of them. I did the same with the Superman one. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, I collected the Superman ones as well. But it started that kind of, okay, bubblegum cards are for everything. And since then, pretty much every major franchise had like collector's cards. Mm. Obviously, we don't get them as bubblegum cards anymore. We now get like the little booster packs of special collector's cards. Yeah. Marvel in the 90s every year did a whole different set of Marvel Masterworks collectibles. That's right. uh, and insisting that you needed to collect all of them in order to get all the shinies. But it really boosts that culture. Then there's the uh, sticker albums by Panini. Yeah. Which, again, used to just be for sporting events like your World Cup yeah, football yeah. and things like that. And suddenly became like, here's your Star Wars one. Here's it your Empire opened the floodgates. I remember getting a Dune sticker album. Really? Oh. That, that's how bizarre it got. It's like, Dune, of all things? <laughs> because but, really, up until that point, uh, especially with, with Geekdom, if you've ever seen the great series on Netflix, The Toys That Made Us, there's a Star Trek episode. Yeah. And, you know, there was never good Star Star Trek merch. Uh, I was a big Doctor Who fan. There was never Doctor Who merch. And, and even... I feel jealous that in the US, the Mego toys for yeah. Star Trek were quite big, but we never really saw them over Yeah, it. we never got the superhero ones. Yeah. And so, you know, merch now is, is you know, it's it's fantastic. And look back and think, you know, it was it was a... There was a dearth and, and you know, my pockets were ready to spend. There was just nothing to spend it on. So, uh, I mean, going into this is what we're, we're saying is that, that we are uh, Star Wars, Star Wars fans. I mean, it's been a troubled history. Empire Strikes Back came out, blew me away, still does. I think I've probably seen Empire more than any of the Star Wars. had a critical reception when it came out, though. Did it? Which people kind of forget. Um, I did. I did forget. It's um, approximately in the six. If you took the Rotten Tomato score kind of meter today that they use and just use the critics from that time. Someone did this on Twitter a few right. days ago. They went back to all the old reviews and worked out what Rotten Tomatoes would have given, like scored everything. And apparently Empire would have been about 60-odd percent. Really? And that's, that's the... Most people look at Rotten Tomatoes these days and when something's below 70, go, oh, that must be rubbish. It's like, well, guess Empire Strikes Back is rubbish yeah. then. I mean, now you look at the Rotten Tomato meter for Empire Strikes Back and it's in its 90s. Yeah. Because people have retroactively reviewed it. People like me and you yeah. who've grown up with it and loved it, gone on to be critics, typed up their reviews, been submitted and they've been added to the score meter and that's what people forget is that none of the star wars films have been well received on initial release so whilst you're looking at rise of skywalk at the moment and seeing like some really negative reviews remember return of the jedi was about it was in the 50s return of the jedi's got a panning i remember it getting a panning because of the the holy ewoks scene because it didn't people were then comparing it to empire and yeah. it wasn't seen as as strong as empire because Empire was criticised at the time for for feeling like an incomplete story, for feeling dark and oppressive and feeling like it's undone everything that was started. Kansas sounds familiar to all the criticisms done to Last Jedi. <laughs> it certainly does. <laughs> and then, of course, we, we got the prequels. I was as excited as everyone else for the prequels. I was there early. I got to see uh, the, the premiere of uh, Phantom Menace. It was exciting. I remember going to a press show for the first trailer. We had to sign our life away in 
blood to not talk about it until it, it was seen on the screen. And we went to a press show just for a trailer for A Phantom Menace. And it, the trailer was a hell of a different film in my head than, than what we got with Phantom Menace. Oh, look, the whole lot of the marketing for Phantom Menace like led me to walk into that film really excited, really like looking forward to it. The trailers looked amazing. Even the pod race scenes, which drag on far too much in the film, mm. they looked so dynamic and energetic in the trailer. You're just like... I want to know what this pod racing thing is. And then when you watch the film, it's like, I don't want to know any more about pod racing. Please, please stop with the pod racing. It does doesn't it? I've only, I, you know, I, we, we talked about this just before we came on air. I got bought the the, 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 the first trilogy as a, as, a, as a DVD set. I've never watched them. They're kind of waiting one day to show my son if he gets into it when I get a bit older. But... I've got no reason to address them. I've seen them. <laughs> if and, he's been bad. <laughs> yeah. You must watch Attack of the Clones. And I saw Attack of the Clones in Australia, 20th Century Fox. Paid for me to see it while I was in Australia. Found me a, a special screening. And I, and I remember that more than I remember the movie because it was it was great. I was in Australia at the time working. It oh, To me, it should have been the first film and completely forget Phantom Menace. Um, the, trilo- the first trilogy has been done better with Rogue One as a, as a, as a prior trilogy. And that brought us onto it. And then, and again, I've said this uh, with lots of radio pieces I've been doing all week, The Force Awakens come, comes out and it had a lot of work to do to bring back fans. We, it was a tainted movie series at this point. The third films had a lot, uh, uh, left, left most people disillusioned by it. It got to the stage where it didn't have realistic effects. It was all, all CGI and green screen, and it came back, and, and Force Awakens did a big job. It's a lot of heavy lifting with that film because visual effects have moved on. They're, they're, they're now seamless, but to use practical effects again and be shot on location rather than in a studio in Australia, it felt like a Star Wars film. And yes, it was a familiar plot, Yeah, but it brought people back to it with that familiarity. It needed that to remind us what we loved about Star Wars because we were... By the time Force Awakens came out, we were all quite sceptical. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, we'd been disappointed three times because Phantom Menace let us down. But we hoped that... We kept hoping the next one would be the one. And then it's like Revenge of the Sith. Oh, well, this is going to have the final confrontation between, like, Obi-Wan and Vader. And, oh... Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, I've got the higher... Gra- oh, just don't even start. And yeah. it just all fell apart. And so it was... Despite the fact that the animated series were doing okay, although occasionally going into mediocre territory, there was some really good stories in the Clone Wars series. We never, never followed it. I... Whenever they did like a three-parter, it was a great one-and-a-half-hour movie. Right. Um, whenever it didn't, it was usually something with Jar Jar Binks or C-3PO. And right, it just needs never to be disregarded. And when it focused on like the clone troopers uh, and like just getting you to like feel some association with them... Great little different kind of story set within the Star Wars universe. Kind of like important that it made you latch on to like some characters who would then betray the Jedi's in the next film. It was just like very cleverly done, but overall it was like yeah, not needed. And the Force Awakens came back and it, and it, it felt fresh, even though it felt familiar. It, it it was it did a lot of heavy lifting, as I said earlier. Uh, Last Jedi confounded a lot of people. I like it more than most because it did. Everything that no one expected. Yeah. It took a chance. It took a risk. You, when you hire a director like Ryan Johnson to make a film, he isn't going to defy expectation. And I'm a big Ryan Johnson fan. I think there were some odd mistakes in it. But you know what? No Star Wars film has ever been a film without odd mistakes in it, apart from Empire. 
and it had uh, it had some choices which sent fandom into into rages of uh, of uh, you know some people who are fans I've actually read actually went into puberty <laughs> because of that film. I thought it was a brave film. Did it work? Interestingly enough, I've not revisited it, and I was going to. I kept thinking I should before Rise of Skywalker. You're, you're of a different opinion than I am. I wasn't enamoured with it. I love how it looks. Uh, you know, like you said, Ryan Johnson's a great filmmaker and what he presents on screen is astonishing. And there's some moments in it that are absolutely brilliant. Holdo's sacrifice is one of the most visually impressive moments that the Star Wars franchise has ever delivered. And I I don't fault the film for what it looks, the stylings of it. I love the Atats like approach and like the strange speeders that they got on the planet with like kicking up the dirt and showing the red salt. It did look great. It was visually an impressive film. I have problems with aspects of the story. I have problems with the fact that, you know, oh, we'll just keep pursuing them from this distance because we can't catch up with them, but they'll run out of fuel eventually. It's like, well, we're not going to run out of fuel. Why don't two of you just jump ahead and we'll pen them in and then it's all over. You know, there's and it was a Battlestar Galactica plot as well. There's loads of bizarre, like, storyline choices. It's hard when you've become so attached to certain characters to accept when that character is acting very differently than mm-hmm. what your expectations were. And I know it's like that gatekeeping fanboyish aspect. And in in hindsight reflection, there's things like, you know, the way that Luke acted. A load of people were like, oh, well, that's disgusting. Oh, how could they do that kind of disrespectful thing? But when you consider it, Luke had begun full Yoda. Yeah. He'd gone into the hermit life and basically turned away from it. Because when you met Yoda for the first time in Empire Strikes Back, he was very flippant and like, Jedi's not great. Yeah, he was hiding away. He was, yeah. in, he was in exile. So, you know, Luke had gone full Yoda. He, he wanted it all behind him. He didn't want to get involved in it anymore. And he didn't think that you should train anyone else up because it only leads to trouble. Yeah. It was logical. The, the Luke storyline was logical. It wasn't what fans wanted. They my, wanted my biggest the team problem up. is that the little like subplots of them going off onto the casino planet to yeah. go and seek all that is completely unnecessary and irrelevant to the story it, because it, they fail. It just takes up so much runtime for no reason except for just to give some characters something to do. Yeah. And whilst it introduced one one character who I'd love to see a spin-off movie of, uh, Benicio Del Toro's um, schemic gambler, I'd love to see a spin-off movie of that character because he seemed so interesting, even though he'd, like, he turned against them and was effectively a bit of a schmuck. But it, it didn't need anything. And then there was like, characters who'd been built up on The Force Awakens that you got a sense that there was more importance to them that were just then cast aside. That's uh, Snoke. Snoke. So yeah, there's also um, the character uh, Captain Phasma, the silver stormtrooper, like commander, who just, when she gets to her final fight, it's just over so quick and you're just like, was that it? But does anybody remember what happened to Boba Fett? After the build-up of Boba well, Fett? Well, yeah. <laughs> I suppose you could say that that's like the Boba Fettish kind of character, yeah. someone who looks so impressive and has this history that you don't know and then all of a sudden it's like, well, we're never going to find anything else. But it just felt like, it felt like Ryan Johnson was deliberately upsetting the apple cart to me. I wasn't ready for that because I was embracing what J.J. Abrams was doing with like his classic traditional themic storytelling aspect. So Last Jedi was a a jarring film for me. Not a bad film. Not a bad film at all. I I think it's it's been slated unnecessarily. And And I've said many times that if it wasn't the named characters that I already knew, that exact same film would work for me. Mm -hmm. It's just the fact that it was named characters that I already knew that 
upset me. And that takes us really into Rise of Skywalker, which JJ came back for. He wasn't the original choice to... No, it was uh, Trevorrow, um, director Colin, of Colin Trevorrow. Yeah, who did... Uh, uh, Jurassic World. Jurassic World. He's credited as one of the writers on it, and he was originally... There's been a, many reasons stated. We don't know the truth of why he didn't come in. But JJ took over the mantle again and quickly, very quickly <laughs> in the film, a lot of what Ryan Johnson had put in place gets thrown out. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got in the notes that, that this film, Rise of the Skywalker, doesn't exactly pick up from where Last Jedi left off. Instead, it rapidly undoes all the events of that film before picking up from where Force Awakens left off. Yes. It almost makes it unnecessary. I mean, it, it, it doesn't quite. I and mean, yes, you do have to see it because there are... There are big moments, big character moments that stem from that. But a lot of it you feel has as, as been, um, a lot of the events that happen in the film has been overshadowed. So what we like about it and what we dislike about it. So we'll start with the dislike. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, be heads up. I really enjoyed it. I think it's very flawed. I have seen reviews that say this is a mostly terrible movie. I've seen terrible movies, as have you. Yeah. <laughs> and we've sat through enough terrible I've movies. I've sat through Paul Blart, Molecop. I've seen terrible movies. We've seen terrible. <laughs> this is not a terrible movie. It's a flawed movie. It's the best looking out of any Star Wars film. Oh, it's, it's simply it's gorgeous. beautiful. It's very hard now to be blown away by special effects. Going back to 1977, 78, when I saw Star Wars, you were blown away in the first 30 seconds of that film with, with the Imperial cruiser coming over, over the top, you were gobsmacked. Those moments are gone. We have great special effects on TV weekly. So to have astounding special effects in the age of Endgame and, and, and just, you know, I've seen episodes of Doctor Who with good special effects. Yeah. In. It was a, a, a beautiful looking film of which the, the effects work is seamless. There is one slightly bit of dodgy CGI in it in the entire film. And if you've got an entire film and that you notice that, then it just proves that special effects will always be special. It is a simply beautiful film. What I That's what I liked about it. It was great seeing the characters. It was great seeing, a, a, I thought, the satis a really satisfying resolution to the whole saga. Yeah. Um, it, we're going to give no spoilers as well, yeah, just point we're, out. We're, if you're worried because you've not seen it and you're worried that we're going to touch on spoilers, we're not on this one because we don't feel that there's a reason to no. touch on spoilers on this one. Unlike when we did Joker and we had to, yeah, so it's to explore the film by touching on spoilers. With this one, it's Star Wars. yeah, And yet the resolution, it pays off. Yeah. It sticks the landing for me. It it really like feels satisfactory. It's just that that resolution comes in the last hour of the film. And it's the first hour of the film that has the problems. Yeah, it it jaunts about. You never get a sense of where you are because it, it jumps from one planet to another planet, to one plot line to another plot line very, very quickly, exhaustingly so. We're introduced to a couple of new characters or interesting new characters. It felt as though they were trying to pack in as many ideas and as many plot points because this was the, the resolution and it couldn't let anything hang over. And, and it jumps about. And it, the first hour of that film is exhausting. An awful lot happens. And my brain was screaming to say, guys, I want to, I want you to just sit down and have a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got the impression that there's about half an hour's worth of like footage that was cut out to just get the runtime down that would have like paced that first hour better. Yeah. Because it just literally feel, I was watching the latest episode of The Mandalorian 
this morning, like coincidentally. Uh, final episode of the series, absolutely brilliant series. But when I was watching the previously on The Mandalorian kind of thing, and that's what the first hour of Rise of Skywalker feels like. It feels like a previously on. Yeah, because yeah. it cuts from like quick scene, quick scene, quick scene, quick scene, quick scene. Yet it's not things that we've seen before. So it doesn't work in that context because you're trying to latch on to like what the story's doing. And it does take a lot of concentration to do it. I can understand some people who then got halfway through that first hour and just went, I'm writing it off. I'm done. Yeah. I'm done now. And then weren't, weren't in the right frame of mind to appreciate the latter half of the film when it does slow down and it does become a typical, you must go to this planet, find this item, you need to take this item to this door, da 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 da, da. And it's a, it's a traditional quest movie. Yeah, it's a, there's a, a the MacGuffin, uh, and there's a MacGuffin early on in the film, which is which is really weak and doesn't actually pay off for much. But But once it finds its feet, once it has that ability to slow down, explore the characters, there's a quite an interesting dynamic move in the story about halfway through that that suddenly sends it in another direction but there's a there's a lot of pacing issues in the first half but my overall thoughts of it are that it's it, it's an enjoyable film it suffers for the, exactly the same reason that I think all Star Wars films do when they try to tie everything up can can we also just mention that Adam Driver is the MVP of this trilogy yes how amazing he has been since Force Awakens right through to the very end He's, he's just really delivered this turmoiled character because he's not inherently bad. He's he's what Anakin Skywalker should have been in those yes. prequels. Someone who's seduced by the dark side, but you can still see that there was some good within them. Yeah. And he he delivers it perfectly. There's an unnecessary cameo in it for me. Yeah. We talked about this. Uh, it'll be interesting to know your thoughts. Get in touch with us uh, via Twitter. But there's an unnecessary cameo which slightly slows the film down. I didn't think the, the, the film needed it at all uh, because then we get another cameo almost directly after it and you, it starts to feel like too much fan service. Ultimately, it was a satisfying resolution and in a really nice way that took us to exactly where we needed to be. And if you're a fan of the original trilogy, there's a nice little, little pointer as well. Yeah. A little Easter egg. Not even little, it's a big obvious Easter egg. <laughs> and it ties up almost 40-odd years' worth of, of uh, Star Wars lore out of it. So, did we like it? It looks great. I think we agree that it looks amazing. The score by John Williams is as impressive as ever, drawing on old themes. It sounds great, and it does what pretty much every Star Wars film has done for the past four films, where there's that one moment where all the sound drops out and it goes silent. And we should be ready for this by now, but wow, it still hits you on the moment, it really drops you into the moment. The action's fantastic, and the prequels still exist. So yes, we enjoy it a lot more than the prequels. Yes. It's not a perfect film. It's a satisfactory resolution. It's got problems. But what film doesn't have problems? Yeah. Too many people seem to want this to be a perfect film. Yeah. And if you're going in wanting a perfect film, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. But you need to accept the problems that it has in order to appreciate how it does wrap things up in quite a good way. The failings of this film come because J.J. Abrams. And it's not that I don't like his writing. I love J.J. Abrams' style of filmmaking. I love his writing. I love his storytelling aspects. It's the fact that he did Force Awakens with all these ideas of what he wanted to do with the characters and then walked away from it and let someone else play in the sandbox without telling them what his plans were. Someone else came along and upset 
like what his plans were so when he's come back he's obviously like well i wanted that and this is my idea and so he's forcibly restored it back to where he wanted that's where the problem is if he had stayed for the whole trilogy i think we would have had a very different outcome critically than what we're seeing at the moment because i think people would have gone along with the ride a lot more but it's ryan johnson's unique way of approaching this the series which i can't wait to see what he does with his own star wars yeah absolutely when movies. he puts to play he creates his own sound boxes. I, I love him as a writer i mean we're going to talk about it in a minute when we talk about uh, our top films of 2019 but ryan johnson's name is very prominent i just feel that having that mix of different creative ideas didn't quite work and i know that you could say that the original trilogy was exactly the same because Lucas stepped away from Empire, but then even though it was someone else directing the third one, he was there on set every time yeah. to make sure it went his way. And it really has like created a disjointed trilogy. But that final, final hour is a perfect ending to the Skywalk saga. Absolutely. Let's move away from the horror of cats and let's move to uh, Jojo Rabbit. Audiences are cheering Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. It's pointless and stupid. Exactly. Wait, no. It's satirical brilliance. If there's one thing the Gestapo are known for, it's our sense of humor. Five stars. That's impossible. Believe it, brother. There's no other film quite like it. God help me. It's a dazzling achievement. It's time to burn some books. Jojo Rabbit. I meant we'd need dogs, not actual German shepherds. Now playing in select theaters. So Jojo Rabbit is the new film by Takiki Wakiki. <laughs> Take away, Titi. <laughs> who I adore as a director, right from what we do in the shadows. I thought Hunt for the World of People was fantastic. Thor Ragnarok was a blast. Refreshing. And this is his kind of, his more grown up film to a degree, but still contains all the elements and all the humour that you, that you like from his film. Andy, do you want to run us through the plot? The film Jojo Rabbit is a haunting, emotional, powerful and extremely funny tale about a young boy in Nazi Germany towards the end of the war whose impressionable young mind has absorbed all the propaganda to such a degree that he even has Hitler as an imaginary friend. However, it's a childish Hitler because it's a child's imagination of what the Führer should be. However, when he finds that there's a Jewish girl hiding in his house, everything he's been taught through the propaganda is thrown into question as he gets to know her. And that's it in a nutshell. It's, it's a really simple plot. Beautifully acted. Kudos to uh, Scarlett Johansson, who turned, in, who turned in the most mature performance I think she's done. I've not seen a marriage story yet. I thought she was she was charming and, and just played this part uh, as the mother character. She was just great in it. Right. And there's a moment in the film where everything falls into line for that character. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's an odd, odd balance because I think the first half is, is riotously funny. And then the second half definitely sort of takes a turn but it doesn't lose that slightly outlandish humour. And it takes a very, very serious subject and, and brings it through with this sort of childlike view of the world with the humour that, that we expect from this director and his his writing and, and produced a, a marvellous film. It would have made my film of the year for last year if I'd have seen it last year. I think with Scarlett Johansson, her scenes as his mother with just her and him as she's trying to protect him from the reality of the world, because it's towards the end of the war, so Germany basically know that they're losing. But her involvement within the war, coming through, and like her, her protecting him from the reality, some of the most powerful and emotional and heart-hitting moments in the film are within there, and I could have watched them on screen just on those scenes for hours. They were so marvellous together. And a lot of that is down to how great an actor is 
the twelve year old Roman Griffin. Yeah, Roman he, Griffin he's, Davis. he's absolutely fantastic. He's got a beautiful face, uh, an emotive face, and and for someone so young to carry a film, which he, he does for most of it, you know, the, his very first film role as well. Yeah, I thought I thought it, I thought it was marvelous. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful film. Has something to say. So it has a, a a poignancy to it, and also this idea that about about how you can be misled and how information is 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 powerful and can take you down down amazingly dreadful routes which change the world. Very relevant. Yeah, 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 not either. <laughs> yeah, but he, and he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't shy away from that within the film. Uh, yes, he, he makes a buffoon out of Hitler, but there are moments in it that, that I don't want to reveal because it's it's it's, it's truly heartbreaking as well. It, it's a, it's a, a unique film from a unique voice. I, I can't wait to see what he does next with with Thor: Love and Thunder, because I think he's got a, a style, and I'm always he's going to be one of those filmmakers that I'm now I'm always going to be interested in what he does because he 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 brings a very sort of I know he's he's is uh, a New Zealander, but he brings that non-American humor style to it. Yeah, that that makes him unique and a unique voice. Well, that, quite it, dry and quirky because they don't always. Yeah, he doesn't try to be quirky. That's, that's obviously, but yeah, that's his style. Yeah. yeah, quirky is his style, and he and he brings that <laughs> to this film, uh, and deals with some um, some some huge subjects on it, and that uh, you know let's not forget Sam Rockwell's turn in it, who's ridiculously funny, a ridiculous character, but yet amazingly poignant as the, well. The jaded Nazi who realizes that it's all over and has just lost all care for the war. Yeah. But he's the camp he's the camp commander at the um the Hitler youth camps and he's marvelous in it because he's just so flippant with his like he's, he's, I've got to teach them this kind of aspect. He's made a career on those set of turns. He does it and and then, and then there's a turn in in the film where he becomes one of the most key focal like realization moments for young Jojo to go oh uh, without we're, we're avoiding spoilers here. We're desperately but yeah, avoiding he, he flips the character from being that like jokey, like nonchalance to like, oh wow, this is what he is. If you really want to see a film that hasn't gone through the uh, Warner Brothers Matrix system, <laughs> um, this is the the film that sort of defines that. It's one of those films that comes along that's 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 got a, a unique voice to it, uh, a unique style to it. It's poignant. It's funny. It's witty. It's outrageous. It's touching. It, it ticks all the boxes. And as I said, a, a filmmaker for me that I can't wait to see what he does. I want to give a kudos as well to um, the He's 10 or 11 years old, but another first role. Uh, the kid who plays Yorkie, his best friend, Archie Yates, has some of the best comic timing I have ever seen for a, a young actor. naturalistic performance as well. Absolutely perfect. It's it, he's, he's got some of the most hilarious moments. And when you watch it, you'll just be chuckling whenever he's on screen. Such a great... Great cast. Yeah. I mean, Rebel Wilson's in there. I'm not a big fan of her. She's only in it fleetingly, thankfully. So she doesn't weigh does she, the film down. Does she rip her skin off? Though? She doesn't rip her skin off. Though, oh, no, thank goodness for that. But yeah, Taika Waititi himself playing um, Hitler, a role that could have been really distasteful, but it works because it's a childish interpretation of what the Fjorda would have been. And so it's very like whimsical, very flippant and very weirdly um, portrayed. And strangely does it again as this film does it, it shifts gears invisibly to to this to the conclusion and, and the character becomes darker as we go through yep. with it. But I mean, yeah, I can't recommend I it mean, enough. The, the, the representation of Hitler that he's playing is what the Hitler youth would have been indoctrinated to and led to believe because despite what Mitchell and Webb did in their little one-off sketch, <laughs> the Nazis no, at no point would have turned around and gone, are we the baddies? Because they did the German people didn't think that they were the baddies. They were led by the propaganda that 
the Jews were out to destroy them and everyone else out was against them. And this is what this film's portraying is like that there were innocents on the side of Germany who were just caught up in the propaganda, but it's how they come to terms with facing the reality of the world that they're in. Yeah, fantastic film. Can't recommend it enough. Forgive me if it's obvious, but I genuinely don't know. Why is it called Jojo Rabbit? It's explained in the film. It is. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it is explained in the film. It's a it's a it's it's actually a, the first major plot point in, in the film oh, right, okay. that moves it all forward. <laughs> well, and, and when when it comes up, I mean, this is cinema sins all over. That when it came up, I, the back of my head went roll credits. <laughs> 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 so i hope you've enjoyed this little glance back with nostalgia or if it's the first time of listening to the show hey welcome to the show don't forget to like subscribe and review us we love your reviews we love to see what you think of us and get in touch with us over at twitter at filmfile uk and also follow us on instagram at filmfile uk thank you very much for listening and we'll see you in a regular episode pretty soon